Heavenly Father, the, the reality that you speak to us um, should blow us away. And sometimes because it can be such a common thing that we get to open your book at any point we want and access your very living and active word speaking to us, the very creative word that brought this world into existence. God, because it can be so, uh, we, can, we can tap into it whenever we want. We can, be, we can miss out on how stunning it is that in your kindness, your wisdom, your generosity, your mercy, that you would speak to us and then have your word recorded in this book. So we just want to pause and say thank you. We ask that through the work of the Spirit, you'd prepare our hearts to come to your word that's able to build up and to challenge and confront and to calm and to empower and inspire and mend all the things that your word can do, God. We want to come and prepare our hearts. And so we ask that you'd grant us at least these two things. You grant us a hunger for it. That we would know that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth, God, that our, that, that, that our souls would crave to be fed by you. And you grant us a humility underneath it. Oh, this text is so deeply encouraging. But even when it's a great text, a non-confrontational text, a, a, a good news text, we still have ways of resisting it. And so might you grant us a humility to sit beneath it. Beyond all of those things, God, what we pray every single week as a church and what every person in this room needs, regardless of whether they've walked with you for 80 years or they don't yet know Jesus, what all of us need is to leave this time more impressed with Jesus. So would you make him loud? Would you make him unavoidable, unmissable? Would you reveal the real Jesus in all of his glory and splendor to us? Through your word, in conversations, through song, through prayers, we receive communion. And even in our benediction as we are blessed and sent out into the world until we get to come back together again to lift up the name of Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last night it was about 8.30 or so, and I'd forgotten that I had not asked my wife, like I forgot I was preaching this Sunday. Um, I'd forgotten that I hadn't asked my wife permission to share a story, and I always try to ask if, it, particularly family members, uh, can I share this story? And so I remembered, and I looked at Katie, we were in the kitchen, I said, oh, hey, Katie, I forgot to ask you this, but can I share with the church the first Christmas gift that you got us in 1995? We were dating boyfriend, girlfriend friend, had just started dating, probably been dating six months. I said, can I share the first Christmas gift that you got me? And she laughed and she goes, you mean the one you didn't like? And I said, yeah, the one I didn't like. The one my new girlfriend got me. Katie bought me first Christmas, been dating at this point, I guess about eight months, bought me a men's devotional Bible with my name on the cover in gold. Yeah, you really don't know where this is going. I opened it up, and I tried to fake excitement, and I said, thanks. What, what, was, what am I supposed to do with this? I was 18, didn't really read the Bible almost ever. We just got involved in a church. We were going to Western. It was the first time I really, like, every single week was part of a church, never read the Bible. I just, I didn't know what to do with this gift, this, this gift that really is an absolutely stunning gift. It's the best gift she could have gotten me. I look back in the kindness of God through what is now my wife to get me something that I, that I try to like want to build my life on. 
She got me a, a Bible. I didn't really see it seem that great at the time, but it was. I just didn't have eyes to see it. Today's text can be a lot like that. It's an incredible gift. But it's a, it, it's a tricky text to access. The genre that we're going to look at is what's called the genealogy. It's a, it's a list of names. It's a family tree. And oftentimes, these are the portions of Scripture that we, we have a tendency to skip past because it's hard to know, what do I do with this? What I'm hoping is God would give us some eyes to see really some incredible things from this text. We're going to look at three things specifically. This genealogy is about good news, not good advice. This genealogy is about good news for anyone in this room that is willing to hear it. And this genealogy is about good news in a world that's often filled with a lot of bad news. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? A hint on when you're reading genealogies is if you don't know how to pronounce something, you just say it loudly and confidently and most people will <laughs> go along with you. As in the side, this is a gift to everyone in the room, pregnant, looking for baby names. All right. Um, this is God's holy, wonderful word. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jehaniah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jehoniah was the father of Shelatriel, and Shelatriel was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and I didn't do that one confidently, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Motham, and Motham the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Feel free to grab a seat. Here's what you will not find in the birth narrative, in the genealogies of Jesus Christ. You will not find advice. It's really goodness. I'm going to draw from Tim Keller a few times in this. He says this. He says, Matthew does not begin his story of Jesus' birth by saying once upon a time. That is the way fairy tales and legends and myths and Star Wars begins. Once upon a time signals this probably didn't happen or that we don't know if it happened, but it's a beautiful story that teaches so much. But that is not the kind of account Matthew is giving us. He says, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That means he is grounding what Jesus Christ is and does in history. 
Jesus is not a metaphor. He's real. This all happened. Here's why this is so important. Advice is counsel about what you must do. News is a report about what has already been done. Advice urges you to make something happen. News urges you to recognize something that has already happened and to respond to it. Advice says it's all up to you to act. News says someone else has acted. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The son of David, the the son of Abraham. This genealogy, it reaches back 4,000 years And it arrives, it centers, its trajectory is one name, this name, Jesus. Now, depending on how much Bible history you know, how much you're aware of, the names that are included with Jesus are are like the, 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 the big names. Not every name in the genealogy is, but these ones that they spell at the beginning, these were the ones that would have been known. These would have had all the Instagram and Twitter followers. This would have, these would have been the major influencers. When you said Abraham and David, everyone in this culture would have said, oh my goodness, those are big names. Because they mark really big moments in God's people's history. Abraham, where this promise was given from God to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. If you look at the stars, you, could, you, can't, if you can't even count the stars, the amount of people that are going to come from you. Or you look at the, the, the sand on the seashore, oh, my people will be grander and greater than that. I will be your God. You will be, I will bless you. I will make you a blessing to the nations. And then to David, when God came to David and said, David, you're my chosen king. You're mine. And I'm going to bring someone from your line, from your family, that will sit on a throne forever to reign and to rule, to bring shalom, to bring wholeness to this world. And all of those names, they point towards this one, the name Jesus. All of the promises and the commitments to bless and to care and to mend and forgive and to bring in. All of God's promises finding their answer in this name, Jesus. The name Jesus is a significant name. It means God saves. Just in the name alone. Or God is salvation. If you get nothing else this morning, if you get nothing else through all of Advent as we prepare ourselves and look towards Christmas and the return of Christ, if you get nothing else, I want you to hear this. Good news has come. Good news has come. The Savior has come. Salvation has come. Listen again to Keller's words. Advice is counsel about what you must do. News is a report about what has already been done. Advice urges you to make something happen. News urges you to recognize that something has already happened and respond to it. Advice says it's all up to you to act. News says someone else has acted. God isn't adding to your task list this morning. He's not giving you more things that you must accomplish in order to 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 fix to mend your life to make yourself right before God he's saying I want you just to look to my son the long-awaited one the one that 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 we longed for for 2,000 years from Abraham until the birth of Christ 14 generations and 14 generations and 14 generations if you go to those periods of time there at the end of this text it's times of growth and times of hurt times of of famine and times of feasting times of obedience and times of rebellion but through it all God is saying my promises hold sure and they've come true in Christ to rest in that Advent reminds, reminds us as Christmas shouts us. I mean, this is the, the story of God coming in Christ in flesh. He said, you couldn't earn your way to me. You couldn't climb your way to me. You couldn't perform your way to me. And so I've come to you in the person of Jesus, the Christ. It's good news, not good advice. Jesus is better 
better than we think. And it's good news for anyone. This genealogy, it goes through a number of names here. Um, It's good news for anyone. I'm going to look at three different categories of people that this news is for, if you'll hear it. It's for the culturally marginalized and overlooked. There's a couple features of this genealogy that are really unique historically at this time. There's at least two groups that, that would have often been left off of a genealogy like this. One of those was the inclusion of five women. And then also the inclusion of what were known as Gentiles or non-Jewish people. At this time, it would have been highly uncommon. Tragically so, we should say. Wickedly so. To not include women within the genealogy. They were treated at the time that this was written 2,000 years ago as second-class humans outside in value, in power, in dignity, in agency. And what God is doing by including the names of five women in this genealogy is saying that is wrong, that is unacceptable. And including Gentiles in this list of of those who are non-Jews, those who are perceived as being outside the family of God, they were seen as, as, as 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 a subservient race. And by God bringing these in, he's saying, no, all those that are culturally marginalized, all those that are overlooked, they are part of the king's family tree. This genealogy does something remarkable. It brings the marginalized and it points out the overlooked. It's saying everyone matters. It's saying everyone's invited. It's saying nobody has to stay away. Nobody has to wonder if I approach the king, will he welcome me in? I don't have to wonder where I slot in God's kingdom while I might wonder where I fit in this world. I don't have to wonder if God wants to include me on his list. In a world, I'll just say it's in a world of such massive division and animosity. The radical, global, all-inclusive invitation of Christ to anyone to come, no matter where they come from, no matter who they are, is a gift that is sorely needed. The marginalized, the overlooked, I'll give you another category, the notoriously sinful. Notoriously sinful, there's a couple names on here. I mean, all of them have skeletons in the closet for sure. But let me point out a few of them. Verse 3, in Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, and then you see this little phrase by Tamar. Saying Judah was the dad of these two children, and then it points to who gave birth to those children, and it's a woman named Tamar. I won't go into the story, but it is a wild story that reveals the ridiculousness of, of Judah. He, it is his daughter-in-law. And out of his own wickedness and out of his own uh, selfishness and out of his own fear and trying to control his life, ends up putting Tamar, his daughter-in-law, in a, in a very difficult position and then had children that are now part of Jesus' genealogy. Let's look at verses 5 and 6. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. And we see this little phrase, the king. And David was the father of Salmon, and then we look, listen to this, of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. She kind of sparks to something. This points back to an, an episode where, where David, he hadn't gone to war like the kings of the time. He's sitting on top of his, his kingdom, his palace, and he looks down and he sees Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. She's bathing, thinks she's beautiful, and summons that she is brought to him and then assaults her. You don't refuse the king. 
she gets pregnant and David covering up this, he, what he does is he has Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, he has him brought back from the lines where he's fighting for David, brings him back, tries to get him drunk so he'll go down to his wife's house and sleep with her so he can cover over his infraction. He refuses to, he says, oh, I cannot do that while my men are fighting. So then what David does is he sends out the wife of, of, of of, he sends out Uriah, Bathsheba, this, this person that David assaulted, says, send him to the front of the lines where the fighting is hardest, and when things get really bad, I want you to pull back from him so that he's killed. David the king, assaulted, murdered, notoriously sinful. I want, this is the point I want to make. Attention in this genealogy is being drawn not to David's accomplishments, of which there were many, but to his sin. Not to the good things he did, which were many, but to his sin. I need that reminder. I don't know about you, but I need that reminder because a lot of times what we're doing is we're looking at the things that we're doing for God. We're looking at the things we're doing in our cities and our, our homes is, is, is the ability for us to, to feel forgiven, loved, welcome, but okay. This genealogy is pointing out something stunning, his sin, not his accomplishments. God includes the notoriously sinful in his family tree and they never get canceled. Thinking about this, I was watching a show recently called The Outlaws. It takes place in, in England. It's centered around, I don't know, like five or so individuals that all committed various crimes, and now they're sentenced to so many hours of community service. Um, the, I've only watched the first episode or so, um, so I can't tell you whether it's a good show, bad show, I don't know where it's going, any of that stuff. But in the first episode, there was this scene that really stood out to me. There's a young woman, a young teenager, she's like 18 or so, she's a four-point student, she's got a full ride to go to Oxford, and she's in the mall, she's in a shop with her mom, and she's looking at this dress. The, this, the daughter's looking at this dress and says, oh, this is such a beautiful dress, I'd love to get this dress, and, and the mom is like, that's a waste of money, you just need to focus on school and grades and, and not on fashion, and, and, and kind of walks out, and, and so the, the mom walks out, the daughter's still in the store, and and then the, the show, it clips to the scene where, where you see the, the daughter who is in the store running. She's running down the mall, just running down the, the, the big open corridors between the shops. And she's got a backpack and she's running. Behind her is a security guard. And you don't know what happened yet, but you see her running. You see the security guard chasing her. And eventually the security guard catches up with her and says, you know, like, like what, what did you do? She says, I didn't do anything. And it was like, that's not true. What did you take? She says, I didn't take anything. And then eventually they, they, the security guard is taking this young woman um, kind of into this private room. The mom sees and says, what's going on? Says, my daughter didn't do anything. She would never have done this. And, and so the, they says, no, your daughter took something she wasn't supposed to take. And the mom's like, no, that would never happen. And they go in this room and there's all these monitors and all this recording device. And the security guard says, are you sure there's nothing you want to confess to? And she says, no, nothing. So he hits play, and what you see is a camera in the store. You see the mom walk out, and you see the daughter go over and take the dress and shove it in her backpack. Zip it closed. And then someone sees, and she starts to run. And he says, have you done this before? She says, no. He says, yes, you have. And he hits play, and it just goes clip after clip after clip. She's been in this mall just casing the joint for, for, you know, it seems like for a year. She's got a whole booty of stuff that she's taken. Okay, now, fast forward to the scene. She's at court, and she gets told, you're going to have to do this many, you know, hours of community service. Her family's there. They're, they're so embarrassed. The mom and the dad, they walk out of the courtroom. The mom is crying, and then the father looks at his daughter. He says, if you ever steal anything again, you will no longer be my daughter. 
you have brought shame on this family, and then just walks off. You see the 18-year-old just bow her head in shame. A lot of us operate that way. This stuff that we know has been captured, has been seen. It's swirling around and floating. And the thing that our father will never do, the thing that's declared by keeping David, a notorious sinner in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the thing the father will never do is say, if you sin again, I'm done. You've ashamed, you shamed me. You can no longer be in my family. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. One of God's gifts out of a genealogy like this is to remind us that you cannot outsend God's grace. Your mistakes, your failures, your sins do not keep you out or get you kicked out of God's family. Jesus is so much better than we think. Let me extend this a little bit. The inclusion of David tells us something else. Not only does God welcome notorious sinners, he still uses notorious sinners, which I am one. After all that David did to sin against the Lord, against Uriah, against Bathsheba, God still uses him. For example, doing this, composing part of the Bible. One of our favorite Psalms is Psalm 51, which was written after he had done this, after he had murdered Uriah, after he had assaulted Bathsheba. This psalmist says, oh God, against you I've sinned. Would you create in me a clean heart? Would you take not your spirit from me? Would you restore to me the joy of my salvation? See, like, wherever you're at, whatever you've done, as you go into the season, you have such a good Savior who's so good at redeeming that you can't sin yourself into unusability. He's not going to get kicked out. You're not going to get sidelined. Your past mistakes, they don't determine your future usefulness. Let me, I'm going to say that again, because it's a parent with four kids who's in a season of life who feels like I've made so many mistakes as a parent. Your past mistakes do not determine your useful, your future usefulness. Jesus is so much better than we think. So we see the marginalized, we see the, the very sinful. I'll give you one more category. The imperfect, I'm going to combine, this will be like three phrases. The imperfect, the frequently flawed, which you could just say sinful, but I'm going to say frequently flawed. And underwhelming or unimpressive. The imperfect, frequently flawed, and underwhelming. Abraham. Genesis 12. Abraham included this as Genesis 12. You go back to the very beginning of your Bibles, 12 chapters in, the scene with Abraham. God comes to him and says, Abraham, I am going to make you a great nation. I am going to bless you. Have you ever gone on in chapter 12, though, and read what happens by the end of the chapter? He's married to a woman named Sarah, and they're now, they're down in Egypt. And as they're going into Egypt, he says, Sarah, you're very beautiful. And what's going to happen as we go here is people are going to see how beautiful you are, And then they're going to kill me and take you. So do me a favor. I want you to lie to everyone and say that you're actually my sister so that they'll treat me well on account of you. And that's exactly what happens. They go in. Pharaoh sees that she's very beautiful. They bring Sarah to Pharaoh. And she says, this is my brother. And so Pharaoh then hooks Abraham up with all sorts of livestock and cattle while he took his wife. I mean, that doesn't feel like somebody who's faithfully following God. God, I trust that you'll bless me. By the way, lie so I can, you know, keep my neck attached. Genesis 15, a few chapters later, God promises to give Abraham a son. says, I'm going to give you a son. Genesis 16, just one chapter later, they got tired of waiting. Abraham and Sarah ignore God's promise. 
And so Abraham then is intimate with Sarah's handmaiden. They don't trust God. Genesis 17, God again promises great things to Abraham, including a son within a year. Abraham, he doubts and he laughs. God promises, I will do great things. And the response is, we'll see. When you read Abraham's story, who was called a man of faith, who believed in God and was credited to him as righteousness, he was also imperfect. It's a sort of like, I believe, I really believe, and I don't know if I believe. God, I trust you. I got to do this myself because I'm kind of, you're not, you're not delivering when you said you would. I, oh, I, I'm, I'm confident in who you are, God. I'm going to laugh at your promises because they haven't shown up fast enough. Can anyone relate to that? Abraham's in God's family tree. The imperfect are there. Jacob, his grandson, he was, a, I, I have rotten in quotes because I don't want to call anyone rotten. If you know anything about Jacob, he, I'll just give you the, the, the Cliff Notes version. He deceived his blind father and stole his brother's inheritance. That's Jacob. And then he became the, the patriarch of the 12 tribes of Israel. He's the guy who got renamed Israel. He was the guy who deceived his blind elderly father who was close to death and then stole his brother's inheritance. He's part of God's family tree. Solomon, so wise, considered so wise, reigned as a king over Israel during a time of God's people. It was a lot of prosperity. It's a really good time. Started so well in faithfulness to God and by the end of his life had wandered into all sorts of nonsense so far from him. And then we end with Joseph and Mary. I, I was going to go through so many of these names, but all of them are this. Imperfect, flawed, messed up. Some better than others, some worse than others. But then we end with Joseph and Mary. They weren't wealthy. They weren't super educated. They weren't known. They weren't powerful. They weren't politically connected. They're nobodies from an unimpressive town. They were underwhelming in just about every way. They were everything that our culture would say does not matter. And yet they're in Jesus' family tree. Not just in, Mary's the mother of this long-awaited one. Jesus' family tree is full of imperfect, flawed people, unimpressive people. I don't know. That's, to me, that's really good news for someone who is notoriously sinful, who is frequently flawed, who is imperfect and unimpressive. Laval Keller says, at this point, we have to remember the culture in which Matthew was living and writing. We live in an individualistic culture in which you recommend yourself to others with a list of your degrees, work experience, and accomplishments. That's not how it was done in a more communal, family-oriented society. Matthew 1 might look like a genealogy, and it is, but it's also a resume. And those time, it was your family, pedigree, and clan, the people you were connected to that constituted your resume. So a genealogy was a way of saying to the world, this is who I am. It's interesting to know that in those days, people tinkered with their resumes just as they do today. We tend to leave out the parts of our track record that might not make us look good. And people did that in ancient times too. We know that Herod the Great purged many names from his public genealogy because he did not want anyone to know they were connected to him. The purpose of a, get this part, the purpose of a genealogical resume was to impress onlookers with the high quality and respectability of one's roots. Did you hear that? 
impressed. Now, I know none of you have ever polished up your resumes. You, you know, you, 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 you just put it all out there, right? But it's saying these genealogies, that's how they were used. It's a way of saying, this is who I come from. Look at the stock of which I come from. Look at the roots of my family tree. And that's a way of saying that I have value because of that history to impress onlookers with the high quality and respectability of roots. But Jesus' genealogy, it's not scrubbed or tinkered with. God isn't cherry picking the best and the brightest. He's not scanning LinkedIn for, for the uber gifted to recruit to team Jesus. The only name in the entire, entire genealogy that doesn't have skeletons in the closet and flaws in their lives is the one it begins and it ends with. It's the only one we need. It's the name Jesus. We aren't perfect. This genealogy tells us this. We don't need to be, to be part of his family. Let me say that again. We're not perfect. I think we, uh, most of us would, most of us. And the person that doesn't, you're probably really imperfect if you can't admit that. But this genealogy says this. We don't need to be, to be a part of his family. Jesus is better than we think. This genealogy, good news, not good advice. It's good news, oh, for anyone that would listen. The marginalized, the overlooked, the cast aside, the sinful, the imperfect, the, the underwhelming, the unimpressive, those that don't have the trophies or the GPAs or the promotions. It's for anyone, for anyone. And it is such good news for a world that's so full of, oftentimes, so much bad news. Let me give you the first five headlines from the news feed that I had today. Maybe my news feed does this because it's the stuff I look at. But here is the first five headlines. Senate campaign hits fever pitch in final days of Georgia runoff. Our mission is crucial. Subtitle, meet the warrior librarians of Ukraine. And I said warrior librarians. The fact that we're in a world that needs warrior librarians. Third article, the Cold War legacy lurking in the U.S. groundwater. Fourth article, a, a growing scientific field saves lives. That sounds like great news, right? Here was the next line. It's also rife with controversy. Fifth, China and Russia are dominating the supersonic arms race. The U.S. is years behind. Merry Christmas. Yeah, I mean, like, let's just be honest. Like, that's the world where, with, and there, oh, there's good news that gets inserted. There's wonderful things. There's real joys. But if we're honest, there's still longings for something better, something more complete where that's not the news feed. My favorite Christmas hymns are the ones that are the, the longing hymns. O come, O come, Emmanuel, God with us. O come and ransom captive Israel. Oh, we, we mourn in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. Or songs like this, O come thou long expected Jesus. And the line's like, born to set thy people free. I mean, these are songs written from people that said, this world is, is, it can be beautiful but brutal. This world is not the way it's supposed to be. Not completely, not fully, not permanently. And we need one to come and do it. The, the one that was promised to, to Abraham, the one that was promised to David, the one that if you go back to Genesis chapter three was actually the first promise of Christ. When there is, it's known, theologians call it the proto-evangelion, the first gospel, when humanity rebelled against God and God said, oh, one day there's gonna be a son who comes and he's going to crush the evil one. 
And that's what people had been longing for, this longing, this, this Advent season means arrival. We're waiting for the arrival of the Son. And in Matthew 1, what it's saying is the Son has come. The long-awaited one brings good news for people that need it. But Advent actually isn't just about the coming of Christ. And actually, fundamentally, Advent historically was not about the, the birth of Jesus. It wasn't actually preparation for Christmas. It was actually preparation for the new creation. Because Jesus didn't just come. He actually is coming back. That what he began in his, in his life and then his death and then his resurrection will one day be fully realized that the, the curse, I love joy to the world and it has this line, as far as the curse is found, the work of Christ will come and mend and heal everything that's broken. And one of the great things about this, one of the great things about this genealogy is we think about living between these two advents, these two arrivals of Christ and what feels like just a waiting and a waiting and a waiting is that this genealogy, there was a lot of waiting. 14 generations and then 14 generations and then 14 generations and it can get so easy to give up hope. But in all of it, in all of these names, see, these names are not just a sequence of, it's not just a, a series of names, it's a history of faithfulness. It's a history that God keeps his promises, that what God promised to do, he'll deliver on. I love the way Keller talks about this. He says, you cannot judge God by your calendar. God may appear to be slow, but he never forgets his promises. Amen. What is the amen on that? He never forgets. He may seem to be working very slow there, even to be forgetting his promises, but when his promises come true, and they will always come true, they burst the banks of what you imagined. God's grace virtually never operates on our time frame, on a schedule we consider reasonable. God may seem to have forgotten, but right now, he is in the process of arranging all that will fulfill his great promises. This genealogy helps because there's a lot of longing, a lot of waiting. We're doing a lot of longing and a lot of waiting. Daryl Dash says it like this. He says, here's a prediction. And he wrote this for 2022. I just updated for 2023 because it's the same thing. Here's a prediction. 2023 will leave us longing. We will be disappointed with our political leaders. Amen? I don't know. You do it. I do what you want there. Uh, those political leaders, not my political leaders. All right, that's a different sermon. Um, we will be disappointed with our political leaders, or you could put anything you want. We, want. we won't see eye to eye with friends and family on important issues. We'll pick up the news and feel despair. Some of us will suffer major setbacks. God will also bless us with many good gifts to enjoy, but we will be left longing for more. Advent reminds us that we have only one hope, and that's Jesus. We need the one who can not only satisfy our desires, but set the world to what it should be. This genealogy reminds us that. that. The hope is the one it began with, the one it ends with, the one that came, the one that's coming again. God may seem to have forgotten, but right now, he is in the process of arranging all things to work out for the return of Christ and to fill his great promises. Jesus is better than we think. This genealogy is better than we think. It's one of the best gifts we can be given if we have eyes to see it. This good news, not good advice, good news for anyone. And I want to say, I want to personalize this, anyone in this room that will listen. And good news as we go into this season full of really good things and also hard things. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, every single part of it, and all the beauty, all the kindness, all the grace, all the mercy, all the steadfast love, all the covenant keeping revealed in these 17 verses. Show off Jesus to us. I do ask that this would be a season, not primarily of our striving, but our seeing, our receiving, and our believing. Holy Spirit, come and increase our faith. We need you to tune our hearts and tune our eyes and tune our souls to see Christ, to long form to long for what only he can do, to trust in what only he can provide. I pray that you would grant that to every person in this room. Jesus, you are better than we could ever think or ever imagine. Show yourself off to us today, I pray, and throughout this Advent season. In Jesus' name, amen.